Janet Yellen's big day approaches and banks are banning chat rooms. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. David, it is Friday. It is finally Friday. And you know what? I've got a special announcement for Friday. Where the money is is on Swell. It's on the Swell app. Mm -hmm. Uh, This, from what I understand, is a very Swell awesome app. Uh, Chris Hill was showing it to me. Unfortunately, I have an Android device. Swell right now is just on iOS. I have it. It's cool. I'm sure you do. It's very cool. It, it kind of learns what you like and gives you new recommendations. It's like so. a, Chris was describing it as like a Pandora for news radio. What could be better? I'm sold on that. So Swell, you can you can find us on Swell, and I mean it's got to be good if we're there. Right? Yeah, for sure. All right, moving on to the headlines. We start off with the Wall Street Journal. Yellen closes in on Fed chair. That sounds kind of ominous. That makes her sound like kind of a mean lady. Um, anyway, the shark. <laughs> yes, like the shark, the Yellen shark closing around. The Senate Banking Committee voted in, in favor of Janet Yellen becoming the next chair, the first Fed chairwoman, right? The yeah. first Fed chairwoman. And there was a change, a, a change in Senate rules to prevent filibustering. I'm a little fuzzy on this change in Senate rules. Do you know what's going on here with this nuclear option? They only need the majority now? I'm yeah. not a political guy. Is that what's going on here? I, I, I try to stay as far away from po- politics as I can. But basically, before what would end up happening to break the filibuster, they would need at least 60 votes. Right. Uh, now they just need a simple majority. But I don't know how much of a difference that would really make for our friend Dr. Yellen, mm-hmm. because it sounded like she was going to get the votes either way. Yeah. But this this will probably make a bigger difference in the future, and political wonks, I'm sure, are way more excited about it. How much does, would Janet Yellen's appointment really change anything? I don't, th- I don't think much. I, I don't think much at all. If there was no news coverage of it, I don't think we'd even notice a difference. When she steps in. If, kind of, if Fed chair people and people at the Fed were just kind of numbers, we Except didn't, her we didn't know their, of their identity, coming. we wouldn't know any difference, I don't think. I don't think there's going to be a big awesomeness. difference here. Yeah, she does have an aura of awesomeness, though. Yes. Very small, though. She is. She's, she, she, is not, she, is, she is not a tall lady. She is not a large lady. But she has a presence. She has a definite presence. There you go. There's something to be said for that. All right, second, second headline. headline. <laughs> this one comes from the FT. It says, She's Bank, also really smart. Banks ban traders from group chat rooms. <laughs> now, are we talking like 1990s group chat rooms, or were these actually... <laughs> when you just read it, I didn't think about that before. When you read it, I was like, what are these bank traders no, doing? No more sketchy 1990s <laughs> chat rooms here. Uh, but these were business, I guess, quote, business quote chat business, rooms here. Yeah. Uh, I guess they're just getting rid of them to get rid of them. It's Barclays, Citigroup, RBS. They don't want the risk that anything could potentially go wrong in these. The, this, I think the cynical view of this is that... Uh, the, the LIBOR cases, and I guess now some of these, uh, the, the foreign exchange cases, it's been really easy. It's been laughably easy for prosecutors and regulators to track down right. the bad behavior because they're just pulling up transcripts from these chat rooms and here are these traders just blatantly mm-hmm. uh, uh, going, against the, going against the rules, doing terrible things in there. Um, so the cynical view is just... The banks are shutting these down so that it's not as obvious when they're when they're doing things wrong. Um, but but on the other hand, I think that maybe having these chat rooms open where it makes it potentially easy. I mean, I guess it was easy before for the traders to uh, to collude, to 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 work together to do things that they shouldn't be doing. Um, 
I think maybe this is a fine move. I, I think I, if people want to collude, I, they're going to find ways to collude. Of course. I think this is kind of just a, okay, makes you can't little, do this, you got to figure out another way. I guess way. it makes it a little bit harder for regulars to track it down. I think from investors' perspectives, uh, it doesn't make much of a difference. There's still, I mean, there's still pain to come. There's still more of this li- these LIBOR fines coming down. We're not... We're not done hearing about that, even though it seems to have been dragging on for forever. Yeah. And, uh, and the, the foreign exchange stuff is really just getting off the ground. So, unfortunately, this is uh, going to be a continuing story. Yep. Third headline. We go to Bloomberg. And one of our favorite CEOs, this is U.S. Bancorp CEO, cites dangerous retroactive deal risks. That does retroactive deals. That sounds dangerous. Uh, this, is, this is Richard Davis over at U.S. Bancorp. Uh, like I said, he's one of our favorite CEOs. Here is from the Bloomberg article. This is Davis speaking. You have to take a limited view of what the risk is worth, said Davis. It's a buyer beware environment for sure. Uh, deals done to acquire scale or efficiency should be shunned, he said. Forget it. You better do it for real revenue expectation. So he, obviously he's pointing to what's happened to Bank of America. And actually the, the article also talks about Brian Moynihan following him up. And yeah, he was sitting right next saying, to him. Yep, that's us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, so what happened over at Bank of America? What's been happening to J.P. Morgan? These, uh, these banks made giant acquisitions right in the, in, in the turmoil, at the ground zero of the crisis. And in, in the wake, they, they paid big time for it. With Bank of America, I mean, we can, we can look at the, the countrywide stuff and the Merrill Lynch stuff. There were losses that stemmed directly from there. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, I guess it wasn't quite as noticeable because J.P. Morgan was performing better overall. But WAMU and, uh, and probably to a greater extent Bear Stearns would have brought losses over there. But it's more been the legal ramifications. The legal ramifications, I think, caught those... Uh, those CEOs by surprise. Certainly, Jamie Dimon, I think, is, is chastened in a big way by the, the legal uh, the payouts that, that J.P. Morgan has faced. And, and a lot of that came from WAMU and Bear Stearns. Yeah, I think he's, he's got the right view here. You want to go for deals with revenue now. I think the big market share, uh, we need to get exposure across the country with the big banks. I think that's, we could probably say that's over, hopefully. Um, I kind of think of it like like a dog with one of those electric fence collars. They ran into it and they said, wow, that was a terrible idea. I never want to do that again. I hope that we get into an era where banks do that and they make acquisitions because it'll grow revenue, grow net income, rather than just saying, we need to get bigger. So hopefully they learn from their lesson. It's it's encouraging for U.S. Bancorp shareholders to see that their CEO already thinks that way. Right. Uh, for the other ones, it, it's kind of, okay, let's, let's hope they don't do that. But for U.S. Bancorp, not surprisingly, uh, they seem to be focused on the right thing. Did Wells Fargo do it better than the others, or do you think maybe that's partly because they didn't? The, the bank that they acquired was really more of just a bank, versus a uh, what, what, was, what the heck was Countrywide? A mortgage house, a mortgage yeah. chop shop. Mm-hmm. Um, Bear Stearns, obviously an investment bank. Merrill Lynch, investment bank. So Wachovia, while not healthy was, I guess, more of just a bank. So do you think that made a difference, or do you think Wells Fargo just hasn't had as high publicity of problems as the others? I think it's been a a combination of all those things. I don't think it's just one. They were more traditional. I think Wells Fargo jumped out in front of these problems a little bit more than the other ones, potentially. And there's a lot we we don't know. Uh, You know, when you talk about the kind of meshing of them all together, Mm -hmm. it looks like Wells Fargo has gotten through the most of the legal issues and most of the losses there, but it's still possible stuff could crop up about Wachovia, but... 
as of now, it looks like it just wasn't as bad of a company. Okay, focus for today, overvaluation. I wrote an article on the website, the fool.com website, yesterday. Uh, viewers, listeners can look that up. What's uh, it called? I don't remember the full name. <laughs> well, I think it, when it pays to prove yourself wrong. There you go. When it pays to prove yourself wrong. And the reason I, I titled it that was because I have historically considered myself a value investor. And, and frankly, this, this not with, everything I'm about to say notwithstanding, I think everybody should con- consider themselves a value investor. Because at the end of the day, the name of the game here is you buy a company that's worth more than what the market price is at. And that's value. That's when you're, you're finding value. But the issue is, and I, I sat down and I, I talked with David Gardner, one of the Motley Fool co-founders, earlier this week, and we were talking a lot about this, about the, the concept of overvalued, what it means when somebody says something is overvalued. And he runs a, a few of our different services. One of them is Rule Breakers, and Rule Breakers is very much like a venture capital type of model, and a lot of these are, are high flyers, are, are some of the, the, the biggest new companies doing exciting things, but often carry very high valuation multiples. Which scare people. Which scare people. People like you. People, ex- <laughs> people exactly like me. And, and David has a, a six-point list. Obviously, his, his process is, is much broader than this, but he has a six-point list that he looks for when he's looking for one of these rule breakers, as he calls them. And number six on that list is you have to find it documented somewhere that somebody in the media has called the stock overvalued. Somebody like me, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and the idea here is that the PE, so, so a valuation multiple like the price to earnings multiple, can be very misleading because current earnings today don't capture a lot of things that are very, very important about a company. It doesn't capture what's the eventual market opportunity of the company. What's the, one of the things that I really love that he talked about is what's the optionality of the company and its platform? So you think about a company like Amazon with this con- concept of optionality. Amazon, back in 1999, was still talking about how it was a leading seller of, of books and CDs and, uh, and video games. Mm-hmm. And today, it, bas- it sells everything, and right. it's, it's, a, it's a powerhouse in the cloud computing space. It's got its own tablet computer that it's selling to people. I mean, that's optionality where you have this platform that you can then extend out in so many different directions. And most people in 1999 were, couldn't even fathom that, even fathom what a tablet was. Well, if you, told people, if you told exactly. people Amazon's going to sell a tablet someday, they'd say, what are you talking about? Right. What is a tablet? Right. They probably would have thought of Moses and... Uh, <laughs> Were those, those, are tablets, those are tablets, right? Yeah. Sort we'll, of. Call <laughs> we'll call them tablets. That was the tablet back in 1999. The Ten That's Commandments were on Kindles. <laughs> Today they would be. That would be. It would have been an easier trek for Moses if it he was carrying Kindles up. Um, and, and then in, in management, good versus bad management. I mean, in terms of our financial, uh, the, the financial companies we look at, what was the what was the value of Ken Lewis's management and leadership of Bank of America back in uh, b- before the financial crisis? I mean, there was a um, his appetite for growing the bank and and his ability to overlook the potential problems at Merrill Lynch, potential problems at, at Countrywide. Uh, that was a, a detractor for the right. value of Bank of America, but it wasn't reflected in the earnings of the bank at that time. So a lot of these different things that come into play that when you're trying to value a company makes it really tricky to look at just a price-to-earnings ratio. And I know maybe that all sounds a little bit squishy. They're, those aren't hard numbers, and guys like me like hard numbers. So what I did is I pulled up uh, 10 years' worth of, of 
stock returns. So I took all the stocks that were worth at least, all the companies that were worth at least $100 million, according to the market, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then I looked at their returns over the past decade. This is uh, beginning of 2003 to the beginning of 2013. And then I related, I, I, I ran a correlation between the price appreciation, the stock price appreciation, and the P.E. at the start of the period. So essentially what would happen if a low P.E., so a value-type multiple, was related to later high stock returns, we'd expect to see a negative relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't see that, not, not even close. So the, the correlation was 0.018, so for lack of a better way of putting it, meaningless. Right. The relationship was essentially meaningless. And when I looked at specific groups of companies, so the, the stocks that returned that had a CAGR of 25% or more per year over a decade, that's giant returns. Mm-hmm. So the companies with the biggest returns, and I think there are about 30 of them or so, had an average PE at the start of the period of 27 and a me- median PE at the start of the period of 17.4. Both of those were above the overall group, higher average PE, higher median PE. Of the stocks that lost 75% or more of their value, the average P.E. was 27, so essentially the same. The median P.E. was 15.9, so lower. Mm -hmm. So if you were focusing on just buying low P.E. stocks and avoiding high P.E. stocks, chances are you may have ended up with more of these big losers and missed out on the big winners. Now, now I, I think the important thing, uh, an important thing to mention here is that this does not mean go out and just buy stocks that have giant P.E. multiples. Right. That's not the point here. The point is that you want to understand the company. You want to understand all of the facets that create value for that company and not just focus in on, oh, the P.E. is 30, so there's no way that I'm going to buy this stock. It's obviously overvalued. Well, and I think the reason investors probably do that is because the P.E. is something concrete that we can look at today and saying, I know this for a fact. This is the price. These mm-hmm. are the earnings. I know that. It's hard to say, how, how do you measure good management? You, you can't put that in, into a number. You can't measure market. You can measure market opportunity, but whether they get that, who knows? You can't measure optionality. So I think we cling to the P.E. because it's a number there and we yeah. like that. But like you said, it's very important to consider those other things. And, and another thing I'll point out is in this era of computers doing so much trading, a P.E. is an easy thing for a computer to, to trade based right. on. So if there, was, if there was so much opportunity in just buying low P.E. stocks, guess what? Computers are going to do it. They're going to do it faster. They're going to do it better for you. But evaluating these things that you're talking about, like optionality, like management, Computers going to have a lot more trouble doing that. Now, I, I know I'm running a little bit long here, but there's one thing that I, one other thing I want to point out that I think will be important to our specific listeners is that this may not apply across every type of stock, every type of company, because I also looked at bank stocks over the past decade and I related returns to price to tangible book value, and the correlation between those two is a negative 0.2. So not a, not a huge correlation, but that's significant, and that's the negative correlation we were looking for. So essentially, if you were buying low price to tangible book value stocks 10 years ago, uh, chances are that would have helped you. It would have mm-hmm. likely helped you more than hurt you. Um, the stocks that did the best had an average price to tangible book value of 1.37. Stocks that did the worst, again, that 75% loser group, average price to tangible book value of 2.13. So that's... We, we see more of what we would expect, lower price to tangible book value for the better returns, mm-hmm. higher for the lower returns. Uh, and then quickly, looking today, very, the, the, the 20 highest 
uh, among the 20 highest price tangible book values of the group I looked at, uh, RBC, Royal Bank of Canada, 3.27. Bank of the Ozarks, just talking about yesterday, great mm-hmm. bank, but uh, multiple of 3.19. U.S. Bancorp, 2.8. Uh, lowest, AIG, so, so we're looking at financial companies here, uh, 0.73. We've got MBI, the, the insurer, 0.76. And Banco Popular, which we talked about on we this did. show a couple weeks ago, 0.79. Answering Jose's question. Exactly. All right, moving on to the mailbag. You can always email us. We always love getting our emails. WTMI at fool.com. Send us questions. Send us comments. Today, we've got a question from Chris. Chris writes, I understand that financial companies are usually measured on a price-to-book basis or measured on how fast they grow book value. What I would like to know is, why and what about financial companies makes book value more relevant than regular earnings? It also seems like the financial industry is the only industry that is primarily measured by book value. Are there any other industries where book value is the most important metric? Uh, well, I guess the first part is financial companies are very asset heavy, and their assets are the ones that are generating the returns. If we look at a company like Google, their assets are their people and the intellectual property there. The it's, not, it's not loans and securities on their books as opposed to a financial company, which are also mark-to-market institutions. So we can get a good idea about what are those assets worth on their books. So a lot of assets, we understand the, the worth, the market value of those assets there. So it makes for an easier comparison rather than earnings. What are your thoughts? Uh, I, would, I would echo exactly what you said. Um, the other thing that I would add is that banking is a cyclical industry. So uh, whereas with a, with a Google, for instance, you can have secular, very secular growth, which means that year after year, the earnings are building, earnings are building, mm-hmm. um, and margins could continue to expand as the company gets more efficient, maybe gets more value out of its brand. In the banking sector, you are going to have fairly regular swings with the economy. And if you look at a price-to-earnings ratio, which will measure the, uh, the valuation versus the earnings, mm-hmm. when the economy is doing really well, bank margins are healthy, they're going to have more earnings, that P.E. is going to look lower. And during bad times, the opposite will be true. So the P.E. will look higher because their earnings will be deflated because right. the economy is down. The problem is, is that... For value investors that chase low price to earnings multiple companies, they're going to look at the, at, at the low multiples when the economy is at its peak and say, oh, this is the time to buy banks, and they'll buy them at exactly the wrong time. Mm-hmm. So that's another reason why it's better to use price to book value for banks. And, and other, other industries that use it, Ca- very capital-intensive businesses yeah. perhaps, but even that may be getting a little bit carrier factoring and depreciation and stuff. I, I mean, I would think maybe utilities, maybe manufacturing companies, might you might be able to do it there. Um, but even there, sometimes other assets uh, that, that don't show up on the books can play a much larger role. Um, banks and financial companies are primarily a place where I use it. I don't, I don't really use it too much outside of the financial industry. There you go. Bull bear. We're playing a little game today, a little bull bear action. Citigroup's on the table. I'm bullish. You're going to play the bear. I don't know if you're actually bearish. You're not as bullish as I'm me. neutral. You're neutral. Okay, but you're playing the bear. Why don't you go ahead and give us the bear case so then I can tell you how wrong you are. All right, so when we do our rankings of the big four banks, Citigroup is my lowest, so maybe not super bearish, but they are my lowest on the big four there. And as bearish as it gets for four? There you go. Four. It's dead last. Dead last. It's in the basement. Uh, it's trading a, at a 5% discount to its tangible book, which it's a discount. 
value investors like discounts, but a year ago today it was trading at a 33% discount to this tangible book. So the market has realized that Citigroup is not going into the toilet. There's still operations there that can make returns. And when we look at CEO Michael Corbett's goals, he wants to get to a 1% ROA. So let's say he, he falls just short of that. That's, that seems a little ambitious for me. So let's say he gets uh, around 0.8, generates an ROE of around 8%. So you're trading right at tangible book value. Let's say the returns are around 8% return on equity there. And cautiously optimistic, let's say you get 9 8 9% annual returns. I don't know if that justifies the risk you're getting with Citigroup, with the global exposure. A lot of their revenue is coming from emerging markets. It's not just international. It's a lot of emerging markets, a lot of potential risk there. I don't know if you're comfortable with that while only getting 8%. Plus, you throw in the cost of compliance, regulations in other countries that they're involved in. I don't know if the returns from the price today really justify the risks that are associated. Thoughts? Boo. (laughs) That's my thought. Boo. Uh, I think number one with Citigroup is opportunity. You said that, there, that the stock is trading at a 5% discount to tangible book value. You seem to cast that in a negative light. I think that's very positive. It is the cheapest of the big four banks on the price of tangible book value multiple. I think that's opportunity. Uh, there's opportunity in the turnaround that is in progress over the past 12 months. According to our Capital IQ, $17 billion in operating profit at Citigroup. Uh, on Citigroup's balance sheet, there's $54 billion in deferred tax assets. That is a huge chunk of its capital. That's not earning returns for the company. So when, it, when it's able to use those deferred tax assets, when it's able to uh, rejigger its balance sheet to have more uh, earning assets as opposed to these deferred tax assets, that'll be a big bump. Loan to deposit ratio for Citigroup. So this is how uh, how much of their deposits they're deploying in the form of loans to earn money on. In the low 60s, that is very, very low. When they turn that around, when they decide it's a good environment for putting more of that money to work, that'll be a big benefit to Citigroup. Leadership. You talked about Michael Corbett. I think he's a great leader for this company. Uh, he's done well in the turnaround so far. He was leading City Holdings, which there is being wound down before that. I think he's sober. I think he's a good, solid banker. I hope he's sober. <laughs> What's that? I hope he's sober. <laughs> well, running, running Citigroup, uh, at least the Citigroup of the past, it would have been tough to do not sober or, or to do sober. Um, and I, and I think he's a good leader to bring the core banking of Citigroup to the world. And speaking of the world, Citigroup's global positioning, deposits for Citigroup, 38% in North America, 22% in uh, the EMEA, 12% in Latin America, and 28% in Asia. This is a global bank. We live in a global world. Why would big corporations that are doing business a- a- across, uh, across country lines want anything but a global bank. Citigroup is it. It's where it's at. All right. That's fair. Fair enough. I win, right? Agree to disagree. Agree to disagree. Ha. I won that one. <laughs> Finishing off, as we do in the Twitter sphere, David, what's our first tweet? First tweet is from David. Oh, that Shalwell. says that uh, Matt was right. Oh, yeah. That's what you, no, he says, steepest yield curve in almost three years, and we see regional banks hit new 52-week highs, and he does the ticker there for the regional banking index, KRE. We're also seeing big banks hit new highs. Bank of America at a 52-week high here. J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo also near their 52-week high. We don't really care too much about I was just going to ask you that. Do you care about 52-week highs? No, but just wanted to point out that the steeper yield curve is good for these banks. They want this. I know people are saying, 
well, banks get money for free now. They, they love low interest rates. No, they don't. They don't like low interest rates. And you just mentioned the loan-to-deposit ratio is very low at Citigroup. It's also very low at Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and J.P. Morgan. Not as low. Not as low, but it's still <laughs> low. So they have opportunity to earn more income at these higher rates. So it's good for everybody. There you go. Tweet number two. Final tweet of the day. Oh, final tweet. We tweet. We've only got two tweets. Uh, this is from Forbes at Forbes. Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic now accepts Bitcoin for space travel. So space cadets can travel in space with their space money. I want to go back 100 years and show this tweet to someone and just watch their head explode. <laughs> Bitcoin for space travel. They wouldn't even know what you're talking about. It's a foreign language. Actually, that's true. That would make a great sci-fi film. You don't, even have to go, you don't have to go back 100 years. Go back 20 years. 20 years. They'd be like, what is this? Bitcoin for space what travel. What is this Twitter? How does it work over internet? Who is this Richard Branson? The Who funny is thing is, we're, we're, we talk kind of lightly about Bitcoin and joke a little bit about it. But in 20 years, we could be looking at it and be like, oh, remember those guys? We also own some. They thought Bitcoin was stupid. I don't think we Bitcoin, own some. I don't think Bitcoin's stupid. So tw- but I know you don't think it. You're, you're Bitcoin's biggest fan. But you know those clips that are like of people in the early 90s? They'd be like, what is this internet that they are using? So could be Bitcoin. You're predicting Bitcoin is the next internet. No, I'm just saying we You could- heard it here. Viewers, okay, viewers and listeners of where the money is, David says Bitcoin is going to be the next internet. That's a great way to end the week. Do it. Bitcoin is next internet. All right. Uh, we have a Twitter address. It's at TMF Financials. We have an email address. It's WTMI at fool.com. You can tweet us. You can email us. And you can also get a free, uh, a, a free special report about Warren Buffett. Just email Warren at fool.com. I know that's a lot of email addresses. But Warren at fool.com will get you a special report about Warren Buffett and his greatest wisdom. And that's it. Thanksgiving reading. What else do you want? Yeah, exactly. That's our show for today. That's our show for the week. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. We'll see you next week. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.